Hey everybody, it is episode 36 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Austin, Texas with Steve. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. We are excited to be dialing in with you or for you today, a guy by the name of Pete Ray, who is the head coach of a post-collegiate team in North Carolina called Zap Fitness. Zap Fitness also does adult training and adult running camps. And so we're going to get a chance to talk to Pete about his perspective on training, his perspective on leading an elite team and how that relates to also coaching adult runners. So we've got a lot to cover with Pete and we're super excited to have him on as a name that you probably haven't heard in this sport, but as one that you should be a fan of, at least from afar. Yeah, and serendipitously, we've me and Pete have been crossing paths for many, many years in the post-collegiate running world. And to get to talk to him about all the other things we have common ground in, in terms of our training theory, in terms of really what motivates us as individuals, in terms of not only getting elite athletes to a high level, but also looking at the everyday athlete and helping them get the most out of their everyday running experiences and to see running as big goals and also get to talk to him a little bit about about sort of the psychology of running and really pushing the edge of what you think is you're capable of was some really cool stuff we talked about so really looking forward to our listeners to get um, a different perspective someone who's coached at every level and who also is just a pretty cool dude generally yeah so we'll be dialing pete in in just a second again pete ray with that business two names that you should know in our sport before we do that, as we always do, we're going to intro with, in this, in this case, not current events, but current articles, a couple that we came across that we thought needed some discussion from, from Steve and I as we sound off. The first we're going to discuss, and I'll link these in the show notes so you have them, is Nick Simmons recently wrote a blog about what to do for our sport, the sport of track and field, in order to boost interest and kind of take it to the next level. In his in his perspective, a track meet is too long and too boring. And so there's some elements that you need to add to a track meet to make it more interesting. So he put out this blog that suggested, amongst other things, limiting it to 10 events, having big prize money to attract the best names. He's suggesting 100,000 winner take all to the winners. And then he wants to do it in Vegas with gambling and drinking and things happening off the track as well for everybody else to get involved. In. Stripper's going to be involved? <laughs> I don't know, but he did talk about everybody rolling out onto the strip after the meet to have a good oh, time. Oh, that kind of strip. Yeah. I guess I got that. I might have yeah. misread the read Vegas it a little too strip, far. yes, to have a good time. So, Steve, I'll take it to you first. What are your perspectives on Nick's ideas? I, I think that Nick should be commended just for broaching the subject. You know, it's an easy, probably low-hanging fruit. You know, it's like, you know, a clay that he can shoot out of the sky pretty easily because he's been in the sport for a while. And he's known, I believe in this, one of these interviews, or at least I saw an interview where he had, that was that article that you're, you're referencing, right? But I also saw one where he was talking about similar things where he had a beer in his hand talking about it. So he's definitely trying to get people's attention, which first of all, we should all say is a very good thing. Keep on, young man. Keep on. Keep pressing the edges. However, some of your ideas... I'm not so sure about, you know, my first view is the most important thing we can possibly do for our sport is to get it on ESPN. If you can get our sport on ESPN, and I'm not saying on a, on a watching the track meet, but we can get on SportsCenter, any bit that we can get on SportsCenter will be great. 
if we can avoid being on Sports Center from the perspective of drugs and drug allegations, we'd be better off. So, you know what? Usain Bolt, when he goes away, we're all going to be sad because we know that one of the only chances we're going to get to have our sport on the television is for Usain Bolt to win another gold at the uh, World Championships coming up. So, it's like, yes, we, we, need, we need people to pay attention to our sport. I'm not sure if gambling or getting butts in seats is really going to do it. I think we need to try to, again, push how we can make it sexy to television primarily. That's my big push. Of course, if you have beer at, at, at these events, that's awesome. But I don't know that beer by itself is going to be like a thing. Gambling gambling's a real big challenge to our sport when it's a one-on-one race. Anybody at any point in time can throw a race, just like boxing. Boxing, it's easier to see a guy throw something because you know it's one-on-one, mano-a-mano. In a 100-meter in a, in a dash, somebody could fall start, they could get lame. All kinds of things can happen that make it really challenging to look at, at the sport. So I personally seem feel like there's so many things that our sport just hits the real like gut mind, gut, mind, spirit, body connection that human beings have from a 100-meter dash to a 10,000-meter or a marathon that I don't know that we have to go gimmick. Let's just keep telling the stories. Keep fucking telling great stories, and people will come around. Keep looking for those great personalities like Bolt who do tell a story through their performance. And you know what, Nick? You keep telling your story so we can all continue to jump on this so we all have continued communication about it. That's my take. Let's keep talking. Let's keep talking about it. I think that's the best thing Nick did in this article. Some of his actual things. Good luck implementing him. Good luck putting getting distance runners to show up to a meet in Las Vegas. I don't know. You're going to have to get it the exact right time of year. That's going to be outside of the normal track and field cycle. So I don't know. I, 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 I'm, a little, I'm a little in between, but I do praise him in just bringing the topic up. What do you think, Chris? Where's your, what's your view on this? I agree. You got to hand it to Nick. He's somebody who can be controversial at times, but is willing to push the envelope at all times with what he's saying. And I think now that he's retired from the sport, he's now in in a lot of ways become even more vocal than before about changing it and adding interest. But I agree with your point. Although I would like to see beer at track meets, I do think that... Hey, I like beer all the time. (laughs) I am not not saying beer is not the answer. I'm just saying it's not the panacea. It's not the answer. No, I do. I agree. I think the rest of it, that's... It's sort of gimmicky, and the gambling, I, I don't know how you implement that, especially given the fact that in 2007, you know, Kara's going to get upgraded from a, a race that she raced then, so what do you do about the gambling proceeds if someone's busted later? Although maybe that put that put the right incentives in place to really root out that kind of behavior. So I don't, I don't, I agree. I think a lot of that stuff is sort of gimmick and noise, and there's so much to me at the core of the sport, the stories, as you mentioned, that just need to be told. So if I were going to start on an initiative to get more out of our sport, it would start with the very basics of getting a governing body in USATF that is actually motivated and incentivized to tell the stories of the athletes. Marketing. Market. Yeah. Right now they're too hamstrung by their connection to Nike and it causes them not to tell any story as a result. And so you're not hearing the stories that you need to hear with the, with the exception of some of the, the really, really kind of extreme human interest things. But, but you're not hearing the story of the everyday athlete that's trying to compete with everybody else that 
you know, might not have a crazy outlandish thing having happened to them. So tell the stories. I also think USATF needs to professionalize these meets so that there are standards in place as it relates to national meets in particular, that there's no questions about how many people get into a meet or at what point, you know, do you draw the line for cutting off, you know, a steeplechase versus not. And so there's some things that that we need to do to kind of clean up some of the, what would be considered skeleton or kind of bones of the sport so that you can present it professionally and tell the stories. Well, I think you start there and then you build from there with momentum. I think the other thing you would do is take away the restrictions on logos on jerseys so that more companies can get involved in telling the stories. Because if you get more logos on more jerseys, besides the tiny little two by two inch square that they give you now, then suddenly you've got more marketing dollars flooding in from other businesses that can get involved. Those are the things I would start with. And then transforming the the track meet experience, I think it could build on those things of just an amplified way of telling those stories. If I think about the Olympic trials in Eugene and Nike does a pretty good job there with their fan zone of kind of extending the storytelling to that experience off the track there in Eugene. And you know, as much as I don't love Nike, I do think they do a good job when they're focused on telling the stories in the right way. I also think that track and field if they timed their, if you looked at it and sort of took it like a soccer match, right? 45 minutes and they don't do addy. They don't do ads, right? And that's a slow, that's a slow sport until it gets fast, right? You know, anybody that's watched the way Europe, the way football gets played, not U.S. football, but the football. I mean, you, it's not like the humans don't have an ability to stay focused on something for 45 minutes. One of the slower sports out there is actually, in terms of the way it plays out, it lulls you to sleep and then it lightning fast a thing happens and they'll go back and do previews. They'll go back and show it to you afterwards. But we can do that in track and field. Track and field's a circus. Let's, hi- let's not limit it. Let's highlight it. Let's make it into a circus. So the 10,000 meters goes 30 minutes long, right? Well, let's make that an add-on that you can pay for separate. Or if you buy this, you can get that. And those who are real fans can go watch it. But we all get to watch the 800. And then right after the 800 finishes, you go right over to the men's shot put. And you're ready, ready. And then those throwers know they've got to show up and present on camera, on the moment, on call. So I'm sorry if you you're, you got 30 minutes, seconds to get it done, shoot it and make it happen and make it sort of a, cause, and then you jump over to the women's pole vault where they know, okay, green light, your runway run, you go. And, and if you did that, I think number one, you'd raise the stakes in that because you have to do it on call. Number two, you know you're going to be watched. And number three, if you get great announcers, they're going to be able to play it back and forth and back and forth, especially if it's scripted. And then you can get some of those human interest stories that can be told in the moment, stretch it over a 30-minute window or a 15-minute window, and then go to an advertisement that's a little bit longer. There's lots of ways to structure this. But the one thing I think that I don't like about Nick's idea is limiting it to, thir- to 10 events. You're, you're totally losing the circus. We need it to be a circus. I think humans relate to the circus aspect of it and that's the one of the things that is so different about our sport than other sports let's highlight our differences not the similarities we have with other sports let's go for it and say hey this is human behavior people have been running jumping and throwing at the elite level in our history of human history for a lot longer than they've been throwing a ball into a hoop or kicking a ball into a net or putting 11 guys on 11 guys and blowing a whistle and letting them smash into each other. Our sport's been going on a long time and there's some DNA we have built into doing it. Yeah. And if you look at those other sports in the U S that are popular football, 
basketball, they're popular because people care about what's happening on the field or the court. They're not popular because they happen to be selling beer or you have the opportunity to gamble or play fantasy. They're popular because of what's happening on the field. And so if you sort of basically concede that what's happening on the track isn't that interesting, you need all this other stuff to kind of keep people occupied, then you're missing the complete and total point. Dude, I just saw this so interesting. I just watched because Facebook throws this shit at you all the time. Larry Bird's 10 best plays of all time, right? And I think Mo Farah's 10 best finishes of all time. I guarantee you, if you showed that to people and they got just a little bit of a context of who Mo Farah is, they would be just as compelled by that as they would be Tom, uh, by, by Larry Bird's events. That's my viewpoint. Yep. I, I, just, I truly believe our sport resonates with all human beings. We just haven't been able to tell the story in the way that we need to tell the story. Agree with that. All right. So thank you, Nick, for your continued contributions. We love you. Just have slight disagreements on this point. But maybe together we're on to something. <laughs> so, all right. So we'll switch from that article to the second article that we want to talk about. And Steve got in a good Facebook rant this past weekend. So I got to give him a chance to get it all out. I'm not sure that there was enough space in that post to give you a chance to get it all out. But you found an article on Outside Magazine, the basic premise of the article. And I'll summarize it intentionally in a way that makes the kind of point controversial. His basic premise was that it's harder to run a fast mile than it is to run a slow marathon. You found that article, posted it, and ranted on your Facebook page. I'm going to turn it to you to give a little more context on the article and then talk about why you ranted. All right. So, again, this article written on July 27, 2017, Martin Fritz Huber is the author. By the way, this author, I went back after reading his initial article, has written a lot of really pretty interesting articles about running and our sport of running in Outside Magazine. And so, Martin, I'm not bagging on you just to bag on you. But you've got a pretty facile argument here. First of all, what could be what you say a fast mile is more impressive than a slow marathon? And you know, I growing up, if when I was in high school and in college, I probably would have agreed with you. But I do believe that that view is pretty elitist. Ultimately, a mile doesn't take very long to do. A marathon takes a lot longer to do. So duration is a key question here. Number two, what's fast and slow anyway? I mean, my guess is, Martin, if you can't run under about 4.05 for the mile, then you should shut the fuck up because you don't even know what we're talking about. How about let's make it even better? You go, go under four minutes, then how can you say it's more impressive or not more impressive? Because somebody, going out and watch Donald Trump run a mile and going to watch Donald Trump run a marathon, I can tell you what I would find way more impressive. Watching <laughs> Donald Trump finish a marathon over watching him finish a mile? Like, I'm sorry. I get it. I get what you were trying to do. And you make some really good points in your article. You know, you talk about um, how we're so distance-focused that we pay attention to ultramarathons and marathons and don't recognize amazing performances in the shorter distances just because they're longer. And I agree with you. I've said this many times. People have heard me say it many times. A five, a well-run 5K is equal in value to me as a well-run marathon. But both of those two things say well-run. And number two, I can tell you which one's harder to do. I, I've done them both. I've run a really well-run 
5K and run a really well-run marathon. And while I would agree that both of them are equal and very, both of them are extremely difficult, one was definitely more difficult. To run, I only ran 240 for the marathon. I was 40 years old, but it was one of the hardest physical things I've ever done in my life. And I ran a 402 mile. I ran a 1355 K. And while those two things were very, very hard, the marathon was significantly harder. And so I don't know. I, I love that you're making points and you're getting it out there. It just really, really rubbed me wall, wrong that you were going to target slow marathoning in your article and using that as a premise to have this conversation. The conversation you're trying to have, Martin, solid stuff. Let's talk about how hard people work and the value of hard work in general should be equal. But to throw slow people under the bus or to make the statement at one point in time, you say basically, let me get this quote right because it made me laugh so, so much. If I don't get it right here, it's going to be, it'll say, you said something like, um, gosh, I can't find it now. Pisses me off. Wait, 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 I can't find it. Anyway, you said something basically like somebody could just putter through an ultra, like surviving an ultra or just puttering through an ultra. I don't know a single human being that has ever puttered through a hundred miles. Like that's just not possible. So shut the fuck up and let's talk about really apples to apples. And then your article would have gotten right to the point. I had an argument with a former UT teammate. He, we actually didn't compete at the same time. We competed at different times. He jumped on this on my thread on, on, on Facebook and said, Steve, what are you doing? Come on, man. You know this. You know it's better to do one than the other. I don't have – he said, I'm not impressed by someone running a, a slow marathon. And I asked Jeff, who, who, who responded. I said, Jeff, have you ever run a slow marathon? Have you ever run a marathon at all? So if you haven't, then shut up. And his statement back to me was, hey, man, like – it's not like you act as if I don't know what it's like to slog through an 18-mile run. Well, I know you know what it means to slog through an 18-mile run, and so therefore you should have more respect for somebody who's slogging through 26.2 miles and setting themselves up to go for it. So come on, guys. Let's, let's talk about these issues, but let's not throw the slower runner under the bus. Let's talk apples to apples, and I'd be a lot happier. Sorry, rant done. Well, I might, it depends on how many questions you ask me, Chris. I might jump back on this again. Well, you know, it's funny because... Having seen your rant over the weekend, I kind of reacted to it similar to maybe how you reacted when we talked to, talked about Kelly Roberts and Wazell. Sort of like, eh, who really cares? Because I guess my general approach on this one is, why are we like pointing fingers? It's like, who really cares which is harder? You know, I I tend to believe that running your potential in the mile and running your potential in the marathon, at least for me as an athlete, would probably be equally as equally difficult knowing that I'm not one to to have a lot of fast twitch twitch muscles so the mile scares me probably as much as the marathon but but why are we arguing about it who really cares I mean if everybody's out there doing moving and and doing their best at whatever distance who really cares now I do think he's probably trying to throw some stones at that marathoner who's just participating just to kind of collect a medal versus really trying to push themselves. And I'm not going to throw stones at that person, but I do think that anybody who hasn't tried to reach their potential or push back their boundaries by seeing what they can accomplish from a time perspective is missing out on the experience. But I'm not going to throw stones if they chose to just kind of get it done and and try to enjoy the participation of the experience, even if it was difficult, because I know that for everybody finishing or for a lot of people finishing is a big deal and it is hard to cover 26 miles. 
I also think that we should get this guy to talk to Killian Jornet or maybe Camille Heron who ran Comrades or John Armbrust who had our last episode <laughs> running running Comrades is no joke or Hard Rock 100. So I, I do think this guy is generally talking out of his ass just to promote controversy. Yes, I think that that's where he's coming from. And that's what I took to task. Yeah, I agree we shouldn't be arguing at all. But to throw everybody, in my opinion, to throw people under the bus like that um, is uh, is creating controversy for controversy's sake. And I'm, I think that's a great way to get attention. But it was a lot. Here, I gave him more attention. Right. So you got he got out of it what he wanted to. And, you know, Chris, your point was the same point my friend Jeff Wood made, which was, why are we arguing about this? Everybody's doing things for their own reasons. Right. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I agree. I agree. I agree. But this guy said running a fast mile is more impressive than running a slow marathon. That's the that is the that is the that is the lead title of the article. And I just don't agree. I do not agree. I like to tell my athletes who often come to me, especially if they're new to the group, they'll say, I'm slow. Or am I going to be able to hang with the group? And so I, I tell them that there's no slow, only degrees of fast if you're waking <laughs> so up true. at 5.30 a.m. to run. So that's kind of how I think about this whole thing. There's no slow. If you're out there moving, whether it's a mile or a marathon, there's only degrees of fast. So with that, rant over. Steve. Yeah, if others have an opinion, share it with us. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear it from different people's point of view. And uh, Martin, if you're listening and you want to get on the podcast, we'll get you on and we can argue this face-to-face or at least over the, over the, uh, over the airwaves. So um, anyway, I, I, I do truly believe ultimately that, as we said, in both these cases, Chris, the art, the, both these articles that we're talking about are raising the, are raising more issues, which raising issues means we're at least resonating. If we're an outside magazine and people are, if, if our sport is an outside magazine, that's a very good thing. There's nothing wrong about that. So thank Mart, thanks Martin for getting it out there. Thanks also to Nick for arguing your point of view. More of us should be arguing our point of view. That's what Chris and I do every week on our podcast is argue our points of view. So let's all put our hands and hold hands and sing Kumbaya at this moment. And we move on to Peter Ray, Pete yes. Ray, who's gives a great, great, interview today and looking forward to you guys hearing him all right so with that steve you did the intro for me we'll turn to our conversation with pete and we've got it teed up here so we'll just kick it off from here i hope you enjoy it so we have pete ray from zap fitness joining us we're super excited to have you how are you doing pete uh i'm doing great greetings from uh, blowing rock north carolina how's the weather there in august now uh, so this morning it was 52 degrees. Uh, the high today is 72 here in Blowing Rock. Oh man, gonna make us Austinites jealous. <laughs> we've we've got a quote unquote cool front coming through, which meant that it was 75 this morning instead of 80, and it'll be warming up into the upper 90s instead of 104 or five. So, <laughs> so there you go. You're definitely you definitely got the better end of the weather stick. Yeah, the, the, the heat makes you tough, though, too. So It does. That's what we're counting on. <laughs> so thank you again for joining us, Pete. We're super excited to have you from Zap Fitness. wanted to kick off the questioning and just ask you a little bit about your background. How did you get into running as an athlete, and then how did that evolve into becoming a coach over time? 
Uh, sure. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a soccer town in central Connecticut um, where, you know, all the cool kids played soccer. And uh, I was just good enough to make the team, but I never got to start. So uh, uh, the uh, uh, we used to joke that the go nowhere losers uh, all ran cross country. Uh, but uh, I had a passion for it and did it well and um, um, ran well in high school. And then I ran uh, collegiately and, and post-collegiately and um, the uh, the only uh, the only post-collegiate group that offered me a spot on their team was one in the south and that's what brought me to the south in the early 90s after I finished collegiate running at the University of Connecticut um, but but was uh, coaching athletes from the time I was still an undergraduate I spent all of my summers in high school and college working at a at a running facility very much like zap in northern Vermont in a little town called Craftsbury and it's where I met the camp directors, uh, Peter Fitzinger, who worked the, 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 the summers uh, during the time when he was made two Olympic teams, and Craig Holm and uh, Kerr Caspoon Holm. These were, you know, 213 type marathoners and started uh, coaching uh, club individuals uh, even then when I was 19, 20 years old. Uh, and then after um, college, when I was running uh, with a Nike South team in Atlanta, which uh, existed then, uh, started teaching, taking uh, coaching courses, and um, I was a high school coach down in Atlanta, uh, and then uh, got a master's and got really excited about uh, coaching more club-level athletes with athletes living in and around Atlanta, had a few qualify for the trials, and uh, in 2002 uh, was hired to be the assistant coach um, at Zap, the year that Zap Fitness uh, opened by its um, uh, one of the founders, Andy Palmer. So, man, you've had exposure to some of the, the greats, Pete, Pete Fitzinger. <laughs> many don't know, don't know that name necessarily, but they should. Yep. As the author of one of the marathoning Bibles out there, Advanced Marathoning, for those that want to find a book, he's, he's written one of the, the best marathon training books, I think, out there. Yeah, he's, out, he's outstanding, and uh, a lot of folks don't know he made two teams, uh, 84 and 88, and uh, uh, shares much of his knowledge with me to to this day he's still a sounding board for me even though he lives down in New Zealand Pete Fitzinger winning the 1984 Olympic trials was a seminal race for me I remember watching that race as it played out never having heard of Pete Fitzinger watching his aggressive race style going away from the front and staying away it was really cool to think that you were able to connect with him and actually have experiences with him at that same time yeah he he was great in fact the summer the summer before uh that that win and then immediately following that win in the summer of 84 he was in craftsbury um training for the uh for the la games and it was uh neat to be around as a 15 year old to watch someone with that uh with that kind of focus and of course his wife uh christine hughes now christine fitzinger was a new zealand olympian at 3,000 meters so she was also a great resource he holds an MBA from Cornell as well, so not a dumb guy. What, what was he like? What was it like learning under a guy like that? Um, you know, every pro runner is different. Pete's very cerebral. Uh, the kind of guy who if you, you know, said, hey, it's a really nice day today, he would stop and pause for 10 seconds before he gave you some response about humidity levels. Uh, you know, um, uh, very, very well thought out and um, – probably one of the reasons that he didn't necessarily possess wonderful PRs. I mean, I think his lifetime PRs were 28, 41 and 
211.40, I think he ran when he won the trials, but he always ran his best. Um, he was the first American finisher at that 84 games um, in, in L.A. Uh, he uh, Very, very cerebral, and um, when he gave you advice, you knew that it was well thought through. That's cool. So tell us a little bit about Zap. You came there as an assistant, but how did Zap start? I know that's a name that people in our world may not know, but we're here to educate them on what it's all about. So how did it begin? And then how did you get involved? Right. So um, ZAP is actually an acronym for Zika and Andy Palmer. Um, and uh, Zika is my wife and Andy Palmer um, is her late husband. And um, he was my coach as a post-collegian. Um, I knew him actually well before my wife did one from the time I was in high school. He was a New Englander. And um when he finished his PhD in sports psychology at Florida State, he went into private practice. Um, he met Zika, who was running for Emory University at the time. And um, they started kicking around an idea of actually building, uh, actually building a training facility to serve two purposes. Uh, one, to educate runners of all ages and abilities from high school athletes to uh, you know, the everyday person trying to finish their first 5K and then use that business model, the profits from which would support uh, post-collegians. And at that time, they started talking about it in 1998, 99, and he told me this, and I won't won't lie, I thought he was crazy. I I said, I don't really know how this is gonna work. It sounds a little bit like a cult, a running cult. (laughs) Um, But he and uh, Zika and Andy wanted to create a self-sustaining business um, that some of the profits could go to actually help support athletes who perhaps weren't necessarily the true top tier blue chippers, you know, the, not, not the Dathan Ritzenheims of the world, but a little bit more of the, Oh, maybe the, the triple a ball player, if we're talking about baseball terminology and give them the things that athletes struggle with, give them housing, give them health insurance, give them travel, give them equipment, give them coaching, um, uh, in an environment where everyone lives together. And, um, uh, God bless them. They made it work. They bought a piece of land. Uh, out. They, they found Boone and Blowing Rock. They found this area, moderate elevation, cool summers, um, and bought a 70-acre piece of land. They uh, started construction on a facility in 99. It was completed in November of 2001, and the first athletes in the club uh, arrived in the spring of '02, the first year I started, which, as it turns out, was the year that um, Andy passed away tragically before the doors actually even opened. Wow! So since that time, 15 years. What? How has the business model played out versus that original vision? Right, um, it's shifted a bit. Um, we are, you know, everything. This is all public information, so there's no secrets here. But um, we are. Um, a business of thirds, meaning that a third of our support for the athletes at Zap comes from um, all of the retreats that we do. You know, we have a high school team actually arriving today at Zap, and we have an adult running camp starting on Sunday. A third of our money comes from all of our camps. A third comes from private donations, just people who make a, everything from $20 donations to much larger donations. And then the final third comes from our corporate sponsor, Reebok. But in, so in the beginning, we had no corporate sponsor. We had no, you know, we had some athletes who ran for individual shoe companies, but it was, you know, the athletes ran for whomever they had support from. Uh, and we filled in the, the, um, uh, the missing pieces. And, um, 
And, and frankly, our budget was much smaller. The camps weren't as busy. Now they're almost all sold out. And, um, um, and we, frankly, we have more, in, in more donors and investors now. There's more people excited about what we do. So we have a bigger team. When I say bigger, we're still a small team. We, we, we have nine athletes on the team and then one, one non-American who trains with us. But as far as the American athletes, we support it's a team of nine, which is quite, quite small in the post-collegiate world. So it's, it's changed a bit. We also give the athletes a lot more now than we used to in terms of actual financial support. And, um, there's, there's, uh, they're, they're well taken care of. So I'm really interested, Pete, to get an idea about how you chose, um, to select athletes and what events you focused on for that athlete selection. In our experience at Rogue, we had, as we started our post-collegiate group, um, we were just recruiting the best athletes we could get. And that frequently um, gave us middle distance and even steeplechase athletes and not the kind of athletes that were actually representative of the customer base we had at Rogue. So tell us a little bit about the decision making that you made, the decisions that you made in terms of the selection of your athletes and how those athletes played out in the camp setting that you have. Um, and especially in regards to how that played out with the number of donors that you have who are donating primarily based on the fact that they have this great interface with athletes that they recognize and understand in their sport. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks, Steve, for asking that, because um, obviously we were well aware of the post-collegiate group you worked with. And um, you bring up, if I, if I may, I want to start with what you mentioned about the events, which is it's really interesting. I would say if there's an area in the post-collegiate world of greatest need, it's still to this day that 341 to 343 1500 meter runner or that 842 steeplechaser or the female athlete who's a 415 1500 meter runner there are so many of those people and and less support for them than anything we frankly like a lot of other groups those are athletes they're so good but we tend we we need athletes who can run the roads because they the individual um runner the soccer mom the um, the walk runner, the, the person trying to knock five minutes off and qualify for their first Boston simply don't relate as well to the true middle distance runner. And when we have camps and we have camps, adult camps from, you know, May to November, and these are folks coming in who, uh, many of them, the, the typical camper is 15 to 20 miles a week and they do it at four 30 in the morning before work. And, and the athletes at Zap, you know, they're the ones who are you know, washing dishes and making their beds and, and sitting with them and eating meals. And, uh, those campers relate far more to ones who contest similar events where, you know, you say things like, well, they just ran a, uh, you know, 147.3800. It, it's just not as relevant. So when we recruit athletes more so now than ever before, when I'll contact a college kid, um, if they're a true 815 guy, frankly, I don't, it's just not our wheelhouse. Um, it's also not my wheelhouse as a coach. I'd probably mess them up, but, um, I look for athletes who project upwards and see view road running as a part of their year, even if it's for the purpose of ostensibly targeting track, because those are the people our campers and donors connect with. So how are you then selecting them what 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 criteria are you looking at 
besides time because one of the things we found in searching for athletes was that there was a you know there was the results you could see on paper but there was also the intangibles that you were looking for to try to understand potential yeah so what are you guys looking for to see what that upside might be probably much the same way steve did with rogue when an athlete applies to us or we contact them and it goes both ways i don't recruit a lot of people but you know i probably have 30 athletes who contact us each year i automatically um if i if i can be so honest i take a look at how did they progress in college meaning did they run phenomenally as a freshman and then and then the, the next three or four years was just a downward spiral i mean that's not someone i'm particularly interested in um i like people who are improving um I also like, we tend to look for the diamonds in the rough, meaning um, it's usually, you know, not the NCAA champion who went to, to Oregon. Um, but um, I like to see maybe it's the guy who went to a school that didn't have as much opportunity. Um, I joke with a couple other post-collegiate coaches that I'm more excited about a guy who ran 1350 for 5K and went to the University of Maine than I am someone who ran 1347 and went to Arkansas, if that makes sense. Um, the, the Arkansas kid probably was at Mount Sac four times. He was probably at Peyton Jordan four times, whereas the kid from the University of Maine, you know, might have run a meet in, in the snow in Boston in, in, in early May, you know. Um, so I, I like diamonds in the rough. I like ones um, possibly who went to schools that weren't, weren't um, uh, on a on a platinum level, you know we've we've got a, a couple of Division two athletes on our team. We've got a kid who was a multi-time Division three athlete in North Central. Um, so I look for that. I look for improvement. And then lastly, we do we interview each kid. They come out for three days, and to us, um, because they all live together. I mean, they live with, on two homes as well as our facility. They eat all their meals together. We have a chef who cooks for them. Uh, I also look for kids who work well with others. I uh, I I don't care how good someone is if they're if they're a jerk. I don't I don't want them on the team. So, I'm really interested in the selection process that you have had with Zap. Um, in particular, I'm interested in the selection process you had with Tyler Pennell, who ran at Western State University. I had some experience running post collegially um, in Alamosa, and I know what running at altitude does to an athlete and you were selecting someone who basically had a, a great result at the end of his career. He was a division two, but he had, he had some injury issues and had some ups and downs and not necessarily someone would have pinpointed and said, this guy's going to be a future great, a marathoner for the United States. But yet he goes out and wins his debut marathon at twin cities where both Chris and I were at that race. We got to see him perform. We saw how well he managed himself in that race and showed so much poise in winning it. I'm really interested in how you prepared him to be ready for that, how you selected him as an athlete, and also how you prepared him for performing at the highest level in his first debut marathon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, the... the um you know, each kid's a little, each athlete's a little different. And, um, I think Jen Michael out at Western is, is an amazing coach, but I will say one thing that struck me was when Tyler showed us his training logs during the interview week, I said, man, these guys run, not only do they have a, a long run, but they work out three times in addition to that in every seven day week. So interesting, 
interestingly enough for me, uh, I thought that maybe the path to Tyler's success was actually going to be to back him off a little bit in terms of intensity, not so much mileage. He still runs a lot, but in terms of, um, we, uh, you know, I looked at him and said, let's, Hey, why don't we go with sort of more of the standard Andy Gerard, you know, Stanford sort of system. Whereas we do a good long run where they do lots and lots of movements in the long run. And we can talk about that later, but just lots of surging in the long runs. We love that. And then a midweek session on a, on, on Wednesday and the rest of the week was simply running, just running, um, and, and some strides. But so for Tyler, the path was actually going away from some of the intensity he had seen and he had been, he had seen a couple, a couple injuries in college, which is not uncommon. Um, and then the part about believing that he could compete with the people he started competing with, um, we tend to start, I, I think that too many professional runners don't run lower key races, that it always has to be a U.S. championship or a tier one road race like Cherry Blossom or it's got to be some high level track meet. But we run quite a few kind of lower key races. You know, there's a there's a little four mile race called the Apple Festival, which is around the corner from us. And, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars or something for the winter. Uh, but the good the real positive to those things are you go to low key races and you see wins and it boosts your confidence. Whereas if all you ever do is run the, the, the races against the very best all the time and, and get your uh, your stuff pushed in, um, that it's 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 kind of hard to rally. So with Tyler, I mean, heck, we started him that first year, and if you saw his racing schedule, you'd think, man, is this you know guy on the Appalachian State GV, JV team? Um, but it was just to give him some some confidence, and you know, it wasn't until um, it wasn't really until the spring of that of that first year that um, he started doing some, some sessions in training where I'd say, well, Hey, by the way, you just ran that session faster than these four men who've already been through our program and look how well they ran. And he believed it. Well, let's continue on the Tyler path just because I think his story is interesting. And, you know, most people don't know that that year he won or got second in Peachtree 10 K which was a big, big deal. We just recently talked about that on an episode here about how big that race is. And then and then won the U.S. Marathon Champs at, at Twin Cities. What what was that like to watch as a coach? Uh, very, very exciting. In fact, I spent the entire day that morning. I like to be on the course. Uh, I, can't, I could never be in a press room watching on a video screen. I, I like to be on the course. And um, we have longtime donors who live in Minneapolis, and they've been friends of ours. Actually, they were friends of Andy Palmer's going back to the 90s, and they were in a car with me with their map out, racing around the course, telling me where to pull over. And um, I was able to see six different spots, which I thought was uh, quite uh, quite the challenge. And, um, and the last spot was at the cathedral at the top of the hill there on summit, just before you go down to the finish. And it was wonderful to be with, um, uh, Diane Klein and Matthew Moore, uh, two of our longtime friends and, and kind of be, be hugging them because they were just as excited for, for Tyler having watched him join, join the program. So it was, uh, uh, it was it was a fun day, you know. Anytime you can win a win a U.S. title was um, uh, was exciting. And and actually, the same day, um, the woman who won Esther um, now Esther Atkins, uh, Esther Herb then um, she had been in our program for three years, and it was so exciting 
to see uh, Tyler's former teammate, uh, Esther, win as well. Uh, um, so that was fun. Were you nervous at all after he broke away? Um, you know, I think he, he, you know, I was a little worried about Jared Ward. I, I didn't know him as well then. Um, but when, when uh, Scott Smith made a big move at maybe 20 uh, and – Tyler covered it and it was just at the base of all the hills and we do a lot of long sustained uphill running in fact in the national park which is just half a mile from where I'm sitting now you can run as much as seven miles uphill without a break um, about two to three percent grade uphill and we do a lot of long sustained uphill harder runs and um, and I could just tell that when he made a move he um, I gave me the metaphorical thumbs up. He just kind of looked at me and, and I could just tell he was relaxed. So, uh, the answer is yes. I was nervous as hell, but, uh, <laughs> fairly, fa fairly confident that he could carry it for another 24 minutes. So let's talk training principles that led to that result. Maybe not just for Tyler, but for the team in terms of your philosophy built on what you learned from, from Fitzinger, what are your top, three to four to five training principles that you bring to that, to that team? Um, yeah. Uh, so we're, a, we're a pretty diverse group as I'm sure Steve's was with rogue. I, um, we've got pretty much a, a very broad spectrum in terms of athletes on the team. Um, some athletes who run a bit less, who run more along the lines of maybe 55 to 65 miles a week and need to do some and, and do some non-running exercise to supplement in terms of aerobic platform. And then other athletes, um, uh, for example, Johnny, Johnny Crane and uh, Joanna Thompson, um, who run consistently more, you know, 90 to 115 and, and um, haven't struggled really with injury at all. But to your, to your point, um, obviously aerobic development first and foremost, um, but this is an area I would say I've changed as a coach since Zap started, which is making sure that we keep economy in play throughout the year. Um, I, I used to make the mistake as a coach of sort of applying a larger Lydiard-esque base without touching faster, uh, you know, faster rhythms, you know, sort of mile race pace rhythms, even if it was even if it was just strides or or uh, or post run surges. I wouldn't do that in t for, for 10 to 12 weeks. And that was a mistake on my part in the old days that now we'll touch those paces, even in the beginning, ramping off a rest, say August, September, you're just building in. In the past, I would just say, Hey, we're going to build mileage. Um, whereas now we'll touch faster things like just some light 200s and 300s to finish runs, even very early in a training cycle. So one, the aerobic platform two maintaining economy even in the early portion of a base sequence with some long strides economy 200s um, we do a lot of uphill accelerations and then the last one and the most important one is that obviously the improvement of um, uh, the ability for lactate response you know anaerobic threshold the ability to maintain tempo over the 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 um, uh, longer periods and a lot of that comes from uh Jack Daniels and doing a lot of work at sub threshold. So, you know, between 80 and 84, 85% of VO2 max. So not necessarily true anaerobic threshold pace wise, but a lot of those long sustained moderate runs where you might be running, you know, 25 to 35 seconds per mile slower than your current 10 K fitness. We, we 
we do quite a bit of that. So I'm really interested in hearing how you've taken the principles that you utilize for your elite athletes and how you translate those to the, the adult athletes that come to your camps. Um, because in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem like they would be apples to apples. Maybe they'd be apples to oranges in terms of the elite athlete versus the everyday athlete. So tell us a little bit about how you take those training concepts and apply them to your, from the elite athlete to the everyday adult athlete. Right. Uh, I think that the campers who come to Zap appreciate the fact that we, when we speak to them, even, even if it's, uh, you know, we had a lady at camp last week who's 50 and she just started running. And when we talked to her about her training, we speak to the exact same principles, not quite as scientifically, of course, but or by any means the same mileage or any of that, but the idea that you, there's three things you can manipulate. You can manipulate frequency, intensity, or duration. And how often you run, how hard you run, and how long you run, that if those three variables, whether you're a 70-year-old trying to finish your first 5K or you're a, a high school kid just getting started uh, and everything in between, all those principles are the same. And pe people seem to appreciate like, hey, I... I can do the exact same things that, you know, Joe Stillen does and, and, and improve my running. So there are so many parallels between what Rogue has done since 2002, 2003, and what Zap has done from 2002 to 2003 to today. There are a lot of different overlaps and parallels. It's really, really interesting. But I'm really interested also in, in hearing from you a little bit about what the day-to-day -day life is like for an athlete. One of your athletes who runs for you, Joe Stillen, went to the university, went to Princeton University, and then did a master's at the University of Texas. I got to know Joe pretty well during that time frame. One of the more interesting human beings on the face of the planet, and also ferociously intelligent. Tell us a little bit about what Joe's day-to-day -day life is like, um, living in. Boone, North Carolina, and not necessarily pursuing his PhD or or being an an academic, but he's now, you know, making dinner and folding clothes and doing all sundry of other things that are probably very different from what he expected to see from himself professionally. Yeah, uh, Joe Stillen, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin native, and Princeton undergrad, and a master's in aeronautics from Texas, and. Uh, we, uh, my assistant coach, Ryan Warrenberg and I joke that, you know, Joe is one of, from my perspective, one of the more unlikely guys who has been at Zap for four years that he, uh, you know, you sort of view him in some lab at Boeing in Seattle, but he has thoroughly embraced living on a dirt road in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. But to your point, to your question, what's a day like? I mean, I can tell you what his day today is like. He, you know, we were out at the National Park, uh, Moses Cone National Park. It's gorgeous. It's at, it's at about 4,000 feet. And he had a, a just a very light fartlek session with his teammate, Andrew Colley. Um, we finished the session. They went down to Zap. They, did, they, they had a, one of our core sequences in the weight room. And then he immediately was over in the dorm finishing prep, prep three of the rooms because we have a high school team, two high school teams of – 34 kids from Knoxville, Tennessee coming today. So there's, you know, there's uh, floors to be swept and there's uh, got to make sure that the dorm looks really nice for them. And uh, I believe this afternoon he's on duty 
um, helping our chef uh, cut vegetables uh, <laughs> um, to prep for dinner service. Um, so, and then this afternoon he'll have another light run on the Alter G. Um, and then, you know, he, uh, he'll leave in a, uh, leave in a couple days to go down to Raleigh to run a mile at Sir Walter. But, you know, tomorrow night before he leaves, our athletes will do a Q and a in front of the high school team where they get to ask questions of, of the group. And, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a little of that. And then also, um, there's other responsibilities in terms of things like social media, which is a part of contracts now, as you both may know, it's, it's no longer an optional thing. It's actually part of post post-collegiate contracts and Joe's very good at it, you know, blogging, uh, making sure that you, uh, talk about, um, not only our club and zap, but also their, their, their sponsors. The glorious life of a post-collegiate <laughs> Run, running and cutting vegetables all on the same day. Yeah. We we would have similar relationships with our athletes where they would run and then work for us in various ways. So not quite as glamorous as cutting vegetables, though. <laughs> now, talk about the challenges with that team over time. What have been your growing pains? And and then on the flip side of that, what are the what are the most rewarding parts of leading that team? Um, the, to, to speak to the challenges first. Um, I would say that the biggest challenges have been uh, twofold. One, you know, Blowing Rock, North Carolina is not for everybody um, to the point where when we have kids uh, who apply or I contact them, uh, this might seem like I'm shooting myself in the foot, but if anything, I almost go out of my way a little bit to push them and see if it's really what they want to do. Um, that, you know, I think you get a little bit of the uh, wide-eyed, college kid a lot who's read once a runner five times and they think it's going to be great to live in the woods year round and, and run 10 times a day. And it, but the reality of day in, day out training, living, eating and breathing the sport. Um, and, uh, so, so some of the, one of the bigger challenges has been that, you know, we've lost some athletes who have been there six months and said, we, uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I think there's sushi in Boone, but I haven't found it yet. And uh, uh, having kids who embrace the lifestyle of living in this um, relatively rural environment. I mean, we have a college town of 17,000 undergraduates 10 miles away, but it's still it's still uh, quiet uh, mountain living, and that's not for everybody. So that's been um, one challenge. And then as far as the what's been the most gratifying, uh, I just watching athletes, uh, develop. And, and, uh, I've found that I think most post-collegiate athletes, much like the recreational adult tend to set their goals to, um, uh, not aggressively enough, the almost afraid to set high level goals, you know, for the, the possibility of failing. So working with athletes on, on goal setting and saying, Hey, you know, you ran, you ran 2840 last year, you know, why not 28 minutes uh, ne next year? And seeing an athlete do such a thing or a similar goal is, uh, it really gets me going. Well, let's talk about that, the mental side of things. How do you approach mental training with the team and then with the adults that might come to camp? Right. So, um, you know, we've worked with a sports psychologist uh, for years by the name of Stan Beecham. He wrote a book called Elite Minds. 
Um, he does mostly corporate work, but he wrote a book uh, that was directly uh, directed more towards distance runners. That's the, the that book, Elite Minds, and um, and so we through him we've done a lot with things like I mentioned goal setting, um, and we talk a lot about goals, but not just outcome goals, which are in you know in Western thought we all typically think outcome goals. You know, I ran a four minute mile last year. I want to run three fifty six this year. That's an outcome goal or I want to qualify for the Olympic trial. That's an outcome goal. But we talk actually more about process goals, the goals that you can control 100%. So I'm going to make sure I get nine hours of sleep every night and take a 90-minute nap every day. So at, at least at Zap anyway, that's controllable. There's no excuse why you wouldn't, that you wouldn't be able to do that or that I'm going to get um, between 65 and 75 grams of protein every day. If that's something we've been working on you with, with nutrition, or I'm going to get 90 to 95 ounces of fluid every day. Those are 100% controllable things. And if you put those out uh, process goals on paper and get all those things done, the outcome goals, we have those too, the outcome goals. Um, but whatever your outcome goals are, are more likely to happen if you take care of the day to day. So I have a question for you about how you approach the taper phase or the final phase of a marathon preparation for your athletes. Um, and as you look at the adult athletes that you work with at your camps, how you address what we might call a taper so that you've got your runners ready for that great starting line experience that all coaches are looking for in their athletes. Right. And, uh, it's funny you asked that question. Our, our marathon camp at Zap starts this next week. And so when we do our marathon camp, we speak almost most of the people who come to camp are looking at the marathon uh, or starting a marathon buildup or something related to the marathon. And the taper, which, as you know, Steve, is the least scientific element of a marathon training program and the one that uh, is probably most tied to the athlete's psyche. And my experience with both the Zap athletes who have run marathons as well as um, the adults who come to camp, and I coach a handful of people outside of Zap, is that uh, uh, I think most, most people tend to, to over-taper. Um, and that um, I, I find that when you pull intensity and volume away at the same time in those last 10 days, that more athletes tend to be stale on race day and um, we've had much, much greater success with one or two exceptions. But other than that, when the final 10 days, and we train in 10-day weeks for marathon training as opposed to seven-day weeks, but uh, that last week, the last 10-day week, um, is um, only about 30 to 35% less in volume than the highest week of volume they had in the marathon buildup. And that almost everyone feels much better. And I would guess, although I don't know this, but I would guess that the psychological element of uh, feeling feeling pretty good on race day is because they haven't actually cut back too much. And, and I use the analogy of the high school coach uh, that you always talk to high school coaches who say that they have kids who run their best races in the middle of the season when they're training really hard, and then they taper for the state meet and they run worse. And, uh, you know, my response to that is that, you know, well, maybe you should just train the, the, the weekend of the state meet the same way you did training into some, you know, some mid-season tri-meet. Uh, and um, had lots of local coaches try that and to, to, to great success. So you mentioned early that you do a lot of surging within your long runs. I assume in the context of a marathon, 
that some of that's preparing someone both physically and mentally for the challenges of that distance. Talk about your approach there with the long runs and how you work in paced changes to get certain physiological and mental benefits. Yeah, and I have to give credit where credit's due here. The surges in the long run came from one place, and that's the man I still believe is the greatest American marathon coach ever, Bill Squires, still living, living in Boston. And he coached Dick Beardsley and Bill Rogers. And uh, and um, when, when my wife, Zika, and I started uh, dating, um, <laughs> Uh, I soon stopped coaching her. You should never date. You should never coach the person you're dating. Um, but um, she said to me, well, who who should coach me? And I said, well, why don't you call Squires? I mean, you know, he, I don't even know if he's coaching anymore. But uh, And she called him, and he, he agreed uh, to coach her. And, 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 you know, he has no cell phone. He has no voicemail, for crying out loud. But he would mail slips of paper with workouts on them. And the first thing that hit me is I would see – okay, 18 miles, I want you to do a one-minute surge every 10 minutes. And so I would call him and, you know, I would say, well, what do you mean surge? Like, you know, how how hard is this surge? And he would say, well, the surge can be as hard as you want it to be as long as you can return to the pace uh, that you were running preceding the surge. So um, that gave me some indication. So maybe it's a little bit more moderate when you first start doing these things, and then as you get fitter and fitter, they can become more aggressive. But so, you know, in the, at the beginning of a training sequence, it might be a one minute surge every 10 minutes, you know, fast forward three weeks, it might be alternating one and two minute surges with eight minutes between the surges. And then what blew my mind was right before my wife ran the 2005 U S marathon championships where she was second, it was twin cities. One of the long runs was 20 or 22 was something to the effect of it was uh, it was a one minute surge, a one, a two, a one, a four, a one, a nine, a one, a six, a one, just all over the place, some longer, some shorter. And many of those pickups were run um, between between five and 10 K race pace and in the midst of a of a long run. And when I asked Bill Rogers and Dick Beardsley about those things, those runs, they'd say, oh, yes, that's what Squires had us do for virtually every one of our long runs. We never ran a steady, consistent pace. We were always gear changing from the beginning of the run to the end, um, not only to teach you to race and not just time trial, but also teach to teach you how to stave off those bad patches, which, as we all know, in a marathon, you're going to have some bad patches, and those surges really teach your body how to deal with things when they go poorly. But... Um, uh, yeah, so I've taken, stolen those from Squires and we use them with the entire group, milers and marathoners alike. And now we do surging in most of our long runs year round. It's really interesting. You've, you referenced Bill Squires. I curate our rogues, um, workout page on our website. And there's always a quote each week at the top of that page. And the quote I used was Bill Squires quote, the long run puts the tiger in the cat. So that quote makes a whole lot more sense in the context of what a long run was for Bill Squires um, and really sort of drives home the kind of experience a long run was, was for, the, for those athletes running in the late 80, in the 80s. So let's talk about, and we'll use the marathon as the backdrop because as you said, a lot of adult athletes are focusing at that level. If you're training an elite athlete from your team for the marathon and you're training an everyday adult athlete are there differences other than pace and maybe volume how do you differentiate between those two athletes right uh 
so the 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 athlete who's not doing it for a living i tend to be i would say just a bit not a bit more a lot more i mean life plays a bigger role um uh, I, I coach a woman in maryland who's 50 and she's a very talented masters runner but you know she's um she's she's married and she has uh she had an ill father and you know like all the things that we um that we deal with in in life that you know professional runners can to some degree um put aside because running is their job that um so when it relates to things like you know volume um we move workouts a lot she might have a long run planned for a tuesday and something comes up or she had a project at work and you know we'll move it a day or two or um uh, when it when it comes to volume it's a little bit more ranges than 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 set numbers like hey you know this week why don't we try uh let's try to get in uh, 150 to 175 minutes of running uh, on the top end but you know our our tier two goals to run 120 minutes um and if, if that's if that's what you achieve then that's okay too so um i would say i have far more flexibility with the athletes who uh aren't aren't pros but frankly even with the pros that we we're, we're fairly flexible if somebody's super tired we're, we'll we'll move something as well but uh, I would say less intensity overall, of course, less volume, and then just the uh, uh, the ability to be flexible with the sessions and uh, how long they are and when you do them. Are you doing a 10-day week for that athlete as well? Yeah. Because, interesting. So how are they fitting in the long run within that 10 days? I just ask them if it's possible because I really believe in the 10-day week for marathon training that most people prepping for marathons can't. Uh, recover even if they're doing a little less say than a pro that um, a long run every seven days is it tends to be I think too much for most people unless you're running really higher volume so I just ask them like hey <laughs> with your job can you you know is there any way you could do a long run if I asked you to do one on a Wednesday morning um, for some the answer is no you know if you have a school teacher who has to be in the classroom at 6 30 it's not possible but uh, I'm surprised at just how many people have jobs where it's flexible. Maybe it's the, the, the fact that a lot of people are, are uh, e doing uh, e-commerce stuff and they're able to, to work from home some. I don't know. But more and more people now that I work with will just say, yeah, sure, I can do a long run on a Thursday morning. So changing gears a little bit, let's talk sponsorship. You've had a long-term relationship with Reebok. And tell us a little bit about what that relationship has been like for Zap both as a camp and with your post-collegiate athletes, and what Reebok has meant to you and the ability for you to do the things that you've been able to do to this point. Right. Uh, so the, in 2005, at the U.S. Track and Field Championships in Long Beach, California, or Carson, I think it was, uh, Patrick Joyce, who was the head of sports marketing for Reebok running at the time, just walked up to me, and, and I had known Patrick a long time, and he said, hey, I... I know you have this post, this newer post-collegiate team. Would you ever consider a sponsorship that is the umbrella for everything you do, for camps, for the for the pros, for the um, you know the clinics you do? We do a lot of clinics with kids um, for for all that you do, and um, you know that was a newer thing then. I mean, the Hansons, of course, had Brooks, but you know groups like uh, Team USA Minnesota, and there were some others largely uh, athletes had different shoe sponsors um, but we thought it might fit um, especially with our camps it might fit well 
And that was 2005. And between 2005 and 2014, um, you know, to be, to be perfectly honest, Reebok was a little bit in and a little bit out when it came, came to running. Um, more of a, a, more of a fitness brand, uh, lifestyle brand. I mean, running was always there. Um, but, uh, the, the honest truth is that only in now these last few years have they really made from my perspective, a full commitment to specialty running and, um, the, the, the top to bottom, um, product. And that's why I'm, I'm really glad that we, that not only did they stay with us, but we stayed with them. How has that relationship evolved for you? It seems like they're true partners <clears throat> in a sense that they're obviously supporting you, but I would imagine there's some back and forth that happens as it relates to product development. So how has that relationship evolved? Uh, there, uh, it's evolved in a couple ways. You're absolutely right about the back and forth. I like the fact that they ask the staff and the athletes at Zap for their honest opinions. I mean, this year at Track Nationals, they sent three apparel designers out there just to sit in a room uh, at, at our hotel, and they put product out and said, tell us, tell us what you think, and don't tell us what you think we want to hear. We want to know, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of the product? What would you change? Um, so they definitely, that's the, the, the fourth, maybe not the back, but, um, and then, you know, expectation too from them in that, um, they, um, they want us to be out there more. We're now involved with all the employees on Reebok's campus in terms of like instructional stuff relates to fitness and on campus in-house media. And, um, it's, it's interesting, Chris, because I don't know that a lot of post-collegians know this, but, um, when Reebok first approached us, they said, you know, the, the post-collegiate team you have is great and we want to support them and um, we would like them to represent the brand. But to be, but to be fair, we're as, if not more interested in your camps because ultimately those are the people who drive the market are the people who are listening to your podcast. And I try to tell that to our post-collegians a lot. You know, when you go to the Peachtree Road Race and you have a complimentary hotel room and they paid for your gas to drive down there. Ultimately, the, the person who paid for that is the person who might have finished 50,000th at the Peachtree Road Race. Um, and uh, as it relates to our sponsorship with Reebok, I believe it's our campers that are the reason that we ultimately have the agreement we have with them. Yeah, we had a similar thing with Adidas at the time of our elite team. And they were more interested in our training community than yeah. than in our athlete performances. So we understand that as well, although it's sometimes a hard message to convey to the athlete. Yeah. And it's not that I'm trying to tell them that Reebok doesn't value them. They, they absolutely do. Um, and uh, we're able to do all that we do for the athletes on the team and salary and health insurance and all their meals and everything be because of Reebok. But uh, I, I, it's easy sometimes when you're in your little bubble of, you know, trying to get a IAAFB standard or A standard to 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 uh, remember sometimes the the person who's uh, running an hour for a 10k who's the real reason that any pro is able to run professionally. So let's talk now about the state of the sport. By the time this podcast comes out, World Championships will be done. We'll be doing 
a preview episode that we're excited about for that. But who are the athletes nationally or internationally outside of your team that you get excited to watch? Uh, yeah, um, I'd say a, cu- a couple. <laughs> um, and I think all most of your podcast listeners, I, I right now I can I begin to tell you how inspired I am by by Gabe Grunwald. Um, and not necessarily that she, you know she's by no means running the world championships, but I just mean um, our entire team has been incredibly inspired by her in terms of her battle now multiple times um, with um, with cancer and uh, it's just the ability to to keep rolling. I think puts in perspective for all of us just how important it is. You know what we do. Like it's important to chase PRs and it means a lot, but. Um, relationships and and life in general is far more important so she's been my biggest inspiration right now in the global running community um and i know the same for many zap athletes but as far as uh americans that i'm uh, ultra pumped about right now um you know a couple of them uh i i love the way um paul chalimo races uh just uh bold and and uh and brave and um A.G. Wilson is, I think, the finest young 800-meter talent we've ever seen. I mean, obviously, she just broke the American, she just broke the American record. And then, uh, and lastly, I, I got to give a shout out to uh, Amy Hastings on the U.S. Marathon team. She was a ZAP intern before her senior year at uh, Arizona State. She spent a summer working for us at ZAP, and she's, geez, uh, twice Olympic trials champion and running better than ever. So I'm, I'm ultra excited for her marathon. I have a sneaking suspicion. She's going to be somewhere in the top six. One of the things that I get frustrated with as sometimes a cynical person myself is that it's easy to beat up our sport right now with, especially with the doping elements in the news and some other things around, you know, sponsors that aren't, necessarily playing for fair and so forth but i like to remind myself and the fans out there that there's so many good things happening in our sport right now you know if you just look at the performances on its own both women's and men's middle distance on into the distance events into the marathon you know our american results in the context of an international competition of any sort have been unbelievable you know of late and you also have the ability as a fan to connect to athletes in a way that, you know, you've never been able to connect to them with social media and, and so forth. You have new sponsors coming into play. And so to me, there's a lot of things to be excited about as it relates to our sport. As you look at it, yep. you know, what do you get excited about and what do you think the sport needs to do to kind of continue to grow and build upon maybe some of that momentum that I just described. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and, and I, I think we, I, I really want to emphasize one thing you just said, which is the performances and the depth of performance. Um, last year in 2016, one of our zap athletes, George Alex was the first guy not to get in the men's 5k. So he was the 25th man on the list at thir- at 1330 uh, 0.3. And I went back and I looked at 2012, 2008, 2004, 2000, and the, the just getting to an Olympic trials now in 1500 meters, 3000 meter steeplechase, 5000 meters, 10,000 meters, it's incredible in terms of its overall depth. In fact, the only event that we're not deeper uh, in, ter- in terms of not, not our top five, but like if you go back to the, the top 
couple of dozen is the marathon. It's the only event we're not deeper than we were in the eighties. Um, yet I think that's about to change, but, um, so super exciting. Um, what will take running toward, uh, this glacially slow movement towards true professionalism? What can we do to make it a more true professional sport? I mean, I, I, I think, small marketing things. I remember when Doug Todd at Mount Sac Relays a few years ago, he and Brian Yokoyama said, hey, let's run the Invitational Mile and let's let kids go down on the track with the exception of lanes one, two, and three. I mean, little things like that. Um, I'm a big proponent, frankly, of having alcohol at track meets. There's too many track meets now on college campuses where alcohol is not sold. It makes things better. Uh, Other professional sports, anything, baseball, basketball, football, lacrosse soccer you name it and you know there's 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 beer flowing at uh at meets so i think we need to get away from the lily white amateurism world that we still have one foot in um and then and then just uh you know unique unique promotions things i mean you know i saw at bix the us seven mile championships this past weekend we had a couple athletes from zap running and they they started a local high school girl before the entire field. She was the Iowa State champion, and they started her first to see if the field could catch her. And the buzz around that was phenomenal. I couldn't believe it. Um, so they may seem like small marketing ploys, but um, I, I think they begin to, to knock to knock on the on the door that'll um, continue to make us more of a true professional sport. And then as it relates to what you were alluding to in terms of, you know, so many bad things in the sport, I think one of the things about issues related to doping is because even local people here will say, ah, track, you know, everybody's taking drugs. Well, the truth is that the the drug testing, while not perfect by any means, um, we do catch people, but it's because the drug testing is increasingly stringent. And in sports like professional baseball and professional football, which are just an absolute joke in terms of their drug testing when they know when the tests are coming. Um, unannounced testing can catch people. And if anything, I would argue, I think there needs to be a heck of a lot more unannounced testing at a lot more tier two road races where we can really nail people and continue to um, continue to clean it up. Well, another part of that is that if you look at the history of the IAAF and the WADA and some of the times that they've either looked the other way or been complicit on some of these things, or if you look at national federations like athletics kenya not actually administering testing at all so so you're right testing can catch people but you have to actually test people and then you have to bust them if they do come up with a testing positive so there will be some out there that say hey you know we should just make drugs legal because there's no way you could ever catch everyone which is true you can't catch everyone but i say you can't argue that unless they're trying first and so one of my issues is that the IWF hasn't done its job as an administrative body to make sure that everybody's getting the right testing and also holding countries feet to the fire that they need to make sure they have the right testing protocols in place I saw something recently that there's some aspiring guideline that every athlete that competes at world champs has had at least three tests this year. And if you look at the Kenyan Kenyan athletes, very few of them actually meet that standard, and yet we're still allowing them to compete. So let's talk kind of doping just for a second to kind of sure. live here since you brought it up. What Other than what I just said, 
what do you think we need to do to to do better cracking down on the doping issue? Yeah. Uh, again, this is just a. I, I don't have the panacea for. You know, for the the the, the global issue of, of doping, are there are there those who dope? Yes, are there those who ride in the gray area? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I do think there are those who believe that, you know, if taking a legal substance, A, in quantities of 10 pills is illegal, if we take nine of them, then we're okay. I think that that's sort of riding the fine line. Uh, I, I'm of the perspective that that's cheating. Um, but uh, in terms of what we need to do, I again, back to what I said before, I just think that we need far more out of competition, unannounced, show up at your door, testing um you know uh this is i have i have no problem sharing this i mean you know when when tyler won the the u.s marathon championships in um you know at some point you know he made the world half marathon team that same year Uh, at one point i said oh well how many times have you been tested since since college and he laughed he said pete they've never tested me and um and maybe his, you know, his name just didn't come up, and it probably didn't. And he was clearly he was on somebody's list, having won a U.S. title. But it was just one of those like I, I don't understand how that could even possibly happen. I mean, I would I would welcome U.S. anti-doping down the Zap dirt road every day, um, and I I think that uh, that's how we that's how we'll catch people. And just an idea that a couple of post-collegiate coaches, other ones, and I had was this idea that at least as it relates to the roads, I don't know about track, but that, uh, that it wouldn't be the worst idea to ask each athlete to purchase a, um, a, a passport ID as it relates to, to, to drug testing, because where a lot of the people are getting away with, uh, competing and not getting nailed are at road races where they know there's no testing. And that if we had, I think it's five or six thousand dollars to get testing for your race, and a lot of race directors don't want to give that up for their charities or whatever. Is um, you know have the have the clean athlete have the athletes purchase a, a a doping passport, and you cannot compete for prize money in America unless you possess one of those. Um, and it would also pay for lots and lots of random testing at tier two road races. And I think that we would nail a lot of people who earn their living, primarily foreigners who earn their living on the U.S. roads. I agree with all of that for sure. Now, as we wrap, we've had an hour with you. Really appreciate it, Pete. Tell everybody who's listening about the Zap Camps if they if they were interested in it as an adult to go check it out there in North Carolina. Tell them more about what the experience is like. Yeah, I I should preface this by saying here at Zap we are going to make running camps great again. Uh, I feel like that fits within the political spectrum. Sorry, I had to do it. Um, <laughs> Our, uh, the running camps are, are, uh, a lot of fun. It's all ages. Um, we last week at camp, we had an 18 year old and a 72 year old in the same camp. Um, so it's, um, and everything in between uh, our average age is late forties, early fifties. We tend to have a, a bit more women than men, but it's everything from people just truly, truly getting started. We're getting a lot more people who come to camp in their first four or five months of running ever, uh, all the way through people who were you know, trying to knock precious few minutes off, maybe a marathon time. Um, but it's, um, it's uh, relaxing in nature, very educational in nature. Our goal is to have campers walk away knowing more than when they arrived. We have long weekend camps that run Thursday to Sunday and then uh, five day camps that run Sunday to Friday. And it's, uh, 
uh, housing is all on site. We have a 24 bed guest lodge. So for us, 24 is a sellout. So they're not, it's not a ton of people. Um, and, um, we, in the morning we do a run varying length from three miles to seven or eight miles. Come back. We usually have a yoga session in the weight room lunch, and then we'll have a couple of lectures in the afternoon ranging from sports psychology to nutrition to strength training. Uh, we will go to a local Olympic-sized pool and do a pool running session to talk about non-running exercise, things like that. And then we always have a guest speaker. Uh, next week, it's Andy Burfoot. Uh, last week, it was uh, Bart Yasso from Runner's World. Uh, um, Bill Rogers comes each summer. They're, they're fun camps, and you can find out uh, all of it on uh, Zap Fitness, 1P, zapfitness.com. Are there any prereqs in terms of fitness level going in, or can anybody do it? None. Uh, we had a gentleman come to camp last summer, uh, two summers ago, who had lost his wife, and he was a smoker, and he, he took her spot in camp and showed up having not been a runner. Um, you know, uh, so no, um, as long as you have a willingness to move, we would love to have you at camp. That's awesome, Pete. Well, we really appreciate you joining us, and we really appreciate everything you're doing as a contributor to this sport of ours. So thanks thanks for joining us and kudos to everything you got going at Zap Fitness. Sounds like a lot of fun and amazing stuff there. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Chris. You guys got to come out and visit. Wow. We need to put that on our list. All right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks again to Pete for joining us. Really enjoyed that conversation. A lot's to learn there. I think ultimately we more familiar in terms of principles than uh, than uh, perhaps we had thought, but lots of good stuff there from Pete. Thanks to everybody. Thanks to everybody for listening. As always, you can check us out at our website roguerunning.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. This has been episode thirty-six of the Running Rogue podcast. We'll talk to you soon.